Hello, everyone, and uh, thank you very much indeed for the opportunity of sharing in your prayer meeting and Bible study this evening. And thank you, too, for the uh, special opportunities, the privilege that we've had uh, on this visit of coming down to the soccer ministry and sharing in that as well. Uh, that really has uh, warmed our hearts, challenged us, and uh, we've prayed uh, a number of times uh, since that occasion in our private prayers, Margaret and I, for uh, that ministry. Um, the Lord promises us, doesn't he, that that uh, word that goes forth will not return to him uh, without accomplishing its purpose. And so we rest in that promise and believe that God is working in the lives of those young men and women. Well, we're going to focus on uh, the gospel this evening. I'd like to read uh, those familiar verses from the beginning of the epistle to the Romans, Romans chapter 1, written, of course, by the apostle Paul. Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to read the first 17 verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. 
just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Well, may God bless his word to our hearts this evening. I wonder whether you're familiar with the English phrase, all roads lead to Rome. It's very popular in the English language. I'm not sure into what context uh, we would now use it, but uh, the fact is, of course, that it is based on truth, that there was an occasion when just about every road led to Rome, and there was a reason for that. Everyone was to know that Rome was the center of life. Every road in the Roman Empire either led directly to Rome or it linked one of the major roads that led to Rome. Not only did that help to point out the importance of the main city, it also improved trade. One of the reasons that the Roman Empire worked so efficiently and for such a long time was because travel was easy, because all roads lead to Rome. Trade routes moved efficiently. Troops moved effectively. Now, I'm absolutely sure that the Apostle Paul was a master strategist. And you'll know that he was involved in a number of missionary journeys. And I'm sure that in planning those journeys, he realized that from Rome, he could reach the world of his day. If all roads led to Rome, then perhaps all roads led from Rome. And so time and time again, we imagine that he would write Rome at the top of his planned itinerary. He wanted to get to Rome, but something, as he tells us in verse 13, had always hindered him from doing so. Now, we believe that Paul was in Corinth on his third missionary journey when he hears that a lady by the name of Phoebe She's an active member of the church in Cenchrea, which is a port near to Corinth. She's going to Rome, and he writes a letter to commend her to the believers there. But when he has completed that letter, he has produced a theological masterpiece, one of the most important documents in the world, his epistle to the Romans, his letter to the Romans, or as it's popularly been called, the gospel according to Paul. And there, of course, is a reason for that. For the New Testament of the Bible contains no better exposition and explanation of the Christian gospel than you find in this epistle. Paul was the one who, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thought out the theological implications of Christianity. He applied the teaching of the Old Testament in the light of what Jesus did on the cross. He introduced us to some of the great theological terms of the New Testament. One that immediately, of course, comes to mind is justification by faith. He explained the meaning of Christ's first coming. He did justice to the cross. And I sometimes suggest, and I, I think I'm right in doing so, that anyone who wants to understand the gospel, and if we're a Christian, that should be all of us, really should endeavor to grasp the teaching of, we'll say, at least the first eight chapters of this epistle. 
said Paul had never been to Rome. There would be some there who would know of him, but for others he would be a stranger. And he's writing this letter to the Christians there. So he needs to introduce himself, and he needs to introduce also his message. And these first 17 verses, they're sometimes referred to as the prologue, serve that purpose. Now, I've used the word gospel already on a number of occasions. Let's just clarify what the word means. It means simply good news. We attach it to the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, because they present to us from different perspectives the good news about Jesus Christ. And it's in that sense that we sometimes refer to this letter from Paul as the gospel according to Paul. It's a word-for-word translation of the Greek word for good message. Well, you would imagine that uh, in a world, as we've been reminded already this evening, in a world of so much bad news, that you would have thought good news like this would be welcomed. This gospel that Paul is going to detail in this book is very special good news for this reason. It is applicable to any and every human being. Sometimes good news only applies to a certain group of people or even to one person. If you pass an examination, well, that's good news for you in particular. This good news applies to every person and it is the only solution to that person's spiritual need, the gospel. And I said we would focus on that this evening. So let's notice, first of all, what I've called the gospel's significance. Its significance, and you'll find this in the first four verses. Paul calls it the gospel of God. Now that immediately lends it authority, doesn't it? This good news is not from a human source. This particular good news comes from the best source, because it's from God. And so what Paul is going to present to them is the good news of or from God. And then look particularly from verse 2. The gospel he, that is God, promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In making that statement, Paul is making it clear that he's not presenting some new ideology, some new philosophy. In other words, these are my ideas kind of thing. It was promised beforehand. The information that he is going to convey to them is something that had been promised in centuries past through the prophets who spoke in Old Testament times and with that information now preserved in the Old Testament scriptures to which his readers no doubt would have access. And then perhaps comes the most significant truth about this gospel. He says it is the gospel regarding his son. The gospel regarding God's son. Let me put it this way. The gospel's all about Jesus. He is at the heart of the gospel. Indeed, there is no gospel, there is no good message when the essentials of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done have been excluded. 
but in your country and in my country, there are so many churches that don't major on that theme. And for that reason, they don't merit the title church. Some churches call themselves gospel churches, and I like that phrase. But in truth, if you're not a gospel church, you're not a church at all. Not in the New Testament sense of the word. The church is a called out company or assembly of people. Called out by who? Called out by God. You can't call yourself a church if you haven't been called out by God. Well, these first 17 verses in this first chapter contain the very word gospel on six occasions. But even when the actual word gospel is not used, the idea of the gospel is still there whenever Jesus Christ is mentioned. So this person who is central to the gospel that Paul is going to explain and expound in these verses is promised beforehand. And as far as this person is concerned who is central to the gospel, as to his human nature, he is, we are told, a descendant of David. He is the king of the Jews. That's his position if you like, humanly speaking. But this person's center of the gospel is more than one of royal descent. Paul tells us that his divine nature is confirmed by his resurrection from the dead, declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. He is therefore, verse 4, Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm not surprised for a moment that Paul refers to the resurrection. Because the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ really impressed Paul. It was that that convinced Paul that this Jesus who had lived on earth really was God. And he underlines that fact over and over again in his letters. And I would have to say this evening, therefore, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to any gospel, to anything that can be termed good news. You see, my greatest need and your greatest need was to have the issue of sin and its repercussions dealt with. That was our greatest need. I may have said here before that I'm sure that sometimes in gospel situations I aggravate people when I tell them that I know what their greatest need is. And I aggravate them because I've never met them. And they say, well, how could he possibly know what my greatest need is? But you see, if they're not believers, that is their greatest need. And if there should be someone here this evening and you're not yet trusting in Christ, that is your greatest need. To have the issue of sin and its repercussions dealt with. Well, its repercussions are these. The ultimate penalty for that sin in our nature is death, both physical and spiritual. And it is a fact of history that this Jesus, who is central to the gospel, died. And most people will still be able to tell you that he died on the cross for our sins. But if his death is the end of the story, then it ends in failure. 
But the fact that he was raised from the dead confirms his victory over that death penalty for sin. It confirms that what the Lord Jesus did for you as a sinner and for me as a sinner on that cross was acceptable to God as a solution to the problem that separates me from God and keeps me out of heaven. But if Jesus remained dead, and we don't countenance any of this nonsense about Jesus being spiritually alive, you know, within people and so on and so forth. We're talking about a bodily resurrection. But if Jesus remained dead, then the penalty for sin remains, doesn't it? It's still there. But when Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, paid the debt to God for my sin. If he remained dead, then it's not paid. God's justice wasn't fully satisfied. And that's how important the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to Paul's gospel. Jesus said, it's paid. And God, in raising him from the dead, said, yes, it is. It is paid. This is the significance of the gospel. Well, secondly, as we go on through uh, this particular chapter, notice the gospel's servant. The gospel's servant. As Paul begins to write this letter, he introduces himself in the style of the time. Now, I, I say over and over again, at some point in history, we thought it was a better idea uh, to put our names at the end of letters. I can't think who thought of that as a good idea. Because I can't imagine anyone reading a letter, not having a clue who wrote the letter until they come to the last word, and then they say, oh, this letter is from so-and-so. We all look, the back page, oh, I see who it's from. Then we start to read. Well, they got it right at least in the first century, didn't they? Paul. We know immediately who's writing this letter. Paul. And then he describes himself, I think, in a remarkable way. A servant of Christ Jesus. I say remarkable because who's he writing to? The Romans. And what was he? A citizen of Rome. Here's the ideal opportunity for the Apostle Paul writing to Rome to actually present his credentials. And he doesn't mention it. Although he was proud of that because he mentions it elsewhere, for him it's a far greater honor to be a servant of Christ Jesus. Here is the striking example of the fact that the gospel takes over a person's life. Jesus takes over our lives. Many men at this particular time in history were slaves. But Paul was a free-born citizen of Rome and proud of the fact. But he's even prouder, if you like, of the fact that he's a servant of Christ Jesus. And when he says he's a servant, he's conveying the idea of bond slave. Uh, the thought in mind is that of a Hebrew slave tied to his master. There's a lovely picture or a type of this, of course, recorded in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 21. Moses, the leader of God's people at that time, is passing on to them God's instruction as to how they must treat their servants. 
And the law required that if a Hebrew slave had been purchased, he was to serve his master for six years. But in the seventh year, he was to be set free. And then we read in Exodus 21, verse 5, But if that servant declares, I love my master and my wife and my children, I do not want to go free. Then the master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. I don't know what you call this uh, in America. We would call it a bradawl uh, in the UK, which is a pointed instrument. It's like a screwdriver, but it's just got a point on it. And if you want to get something started in a piece of wood before you put the screw in, you want to get a bit of a hole there, you use a bradawl. Well, the Old Testament uses the word awl. Pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. It was the option for a slave to freely choose to serve his master for his lifetime. And that's what the gospel of Christ did to Paul. And what it does to all who truly respond to it. It is an honor beyond any measurement for you and me to be a servant of Christ Jesus. It's one thing for God to call us and as we were reminded in a prayer to bring us into his family as sons. But then to use us in his service. But Paul was not only a servant of Christ Jesus. He also tells us, if you like, in his credentials, he was called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Simply, Paul is saying God called him to be a missionary. When he uses the word apostle, although we'll suggest in a moment or so a rather different kind of apostle to any sent one, the word apostle is translated a sent one or a missionary, if you like. So that any missionary is an apostle with a small a. That's the meaning of the word. But Paul is a very special apostle. An apostle, if you like, with a capital A. He ranks as an apostle with Peter and James and John. And using that picture, as he does, of the uh, building of the church in Ephesians chapter 2. He tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Well, how successful was Paul in the mission to which he tells us here he had been called and set apart? How successful was he? Well, of course, you can't make a measurement of that in time. But what we can say is that when he died, about 30 years after Jesus had been put on the cross, there was a church in every major city of the Western Roman Empire, largely through his efforts. In addition, at least 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament were written by Paul. And so his ministry, if you like, continues right up to the present day. Here we are reading the epistle to the Romans. And if you're a Christian, then I can say categorically it was something from the Bible that arrested your attention, 
that God worked through his word by his spirit to bring you to faith. Now I wonder whether it was something written by the Apostle Paul. Well, what else do we know about this servant of Christ or servant of the gospel? In verse 8, we are aware of Paul's personal interest in these believers in Rome. He had not founded the church there, but he is certainly not jealous of that fact. Rather, he praises God because he's heard their faith is being reported all over the world. I suggested that what happens in Rome quickly becomes known elsewhere. And these believers are making their presence felt. And though there's no radio, there's no TV, there are no newspapers, Paul had heard about it. And that was a thrill to the heart of the apostle. Because it was his desire that this good news about the Lord Jesus Christ should be spread as widely as possible and as quickly as possible. And the believers in Rome were faithful in doing that. And so great is his interest in them that he calls on God as his witness, that he constantly remembers them in his prayers. Now let's not quickly pass over that for this reason. How often do we say to somebody, I remember you in my prayers, brother, sister. And maybe that's somebody that we know, somebody in our fellowship. Paul doesn't know these people. He's not met them. And yet he can call God as his witness. That he constantly remembers them in his prayers at all times. But he has this one desire above all others. He would love to come and visit them. He would love to see God working there through the preaching of the gospel. That's been his burden. I long to see you. But up to the time of writing... His plan to visit Rome has always been frustrated. Well, we know that he eventually did arrive in Rome. Uh, his time in Rome was spent in prison, and we believe that it was in Rome that he eventually died. The Bible doesn't record his death, but Christian tradition informs us he was probably beheaded during the reign of the Emperor Nero in the mid-60s. We can't be sure of that. And yet, even when Paul is in prison he still uses that period of time to spread the gospel. In his immediate surroundings, to those who were there, no doubt to those who called on him, his visitors, and then through what we call the prison epistles, letters that he wrote to other churches from his prison in Rome, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, the personal letter to Philemon. Here was a man sold out to Jesus Christ and the gospel. And Paul tells us in verse 14 that it doesn't matter to him what a man's background is, whether he's wise or foolish, he is confident that the gospel can reach any person and be relevant to them. You won't misunderstand if I say, here's a man who's obsessed with the gospel. And the suggestion that Paul would be embarrassed or ashamed of the gospel is far from his thoughts. And that brings us to verses 16 and 17, which are familiar to many of us. And I want us to look at this under the title, The Gospel's Summary. 
what we have in these two verses is what Paul really believed about the gospel. And I want to put this under three headings, the supremacy of the gospel, the sufficiency of the gospel, and if you like, the simplicity of the gospel. Firstly, the supremacy of the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, let's just understand that when Paul uses the word gospel here, he meant more than an evangelistic message. Sometimes we interchange it, don't we? We talk about a gospel service. We talk about gospel ministry. And in our minds, what we're thinking of is evangelism. Sharing the gospel with those uh, who don't yet uh, know about it or haven't yet responded to it. And that's quite right. That's quite legitimate to do that. But the gospel to Paul was the complete revealed truth about Jesus Christ. It didn't stop at justification, but it continued through sanctification and glorification. And these are the three main themes that the apostle deals with in those first eight chapters of the epistle to the Romans. Justification, sanctification, and ultimately glorification. So that when Paul and others spoke about preaching the gospel, it wasn't simply a reference to preaching to unbelievers, although, of course, that was included. And in the ministry to which he was called, there was no substitute for the gospel. We understand from our knowledge of the Apostle Paul that this man was no fool. He had received an excellent education. His writings show us that he had great intellectual power. He was well-versed in the ways of the world. But he knows that this message is superior to any religion or any philosophy on earth. And I ask you this evening, do you have a similar confidence in the gospel? We are not to be swayed by those around us who suggest that we should be making changes to the gospel because of the circumstances, because of the environment in which we live, because of the way in which people view the gospel in these days. Why don't we make a little change here and a little change there? Paul knew what it was like to live in a culture where the gospel was despised. Why would he use the word ashamed of the gospel if there weren't those at that time who were ashamed of the gospel? A contemporary preacher has written a book with the title Ashamed of the Gospel, and he makes this comment. The gospel itself is disagreeable, unattractive, repulsive, and alarming to the world. It exposes sin. It condemns pride. It shows human righteousness, even the best, most appealing aspects of human nature, to be worthless, defiled, filthy rags. It confirms that the real problems in life are no one's fault but our own. We are fallen sinners with deceitful hearts, evil motives, pervasive pride. And that is not a popular view, particularly in today's psychological climate. It comes as bad news to those who love sin. And many who hear it react with disdain against the messenger. And some of us have proved that, haven't we, in our ministry? Oh, 
you're okay until you say some of these things. It's not easy ever to take a bold stand for the gospel, to be unashamed. It might affect our credit rating with some that we counted friends. Well, Paul would like to have been accepted by others. But when it came to his ministry, and when it came to the message entrusted to him, he was really willing to be rejected on a personal level because of the value of the gospel. Why? Because, he says, it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. There isn't any viable alternative to the gospel. The gospel has no rival in meeting the spiritual needs of the human heart. And so notice Paul's conviction as to the sufficiency of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says. It's not simply a message that provides information facts which people can assess and uh, make an intellectual judgment on. Paul says, I have a message that is accompanied by the power of Almighty God. Inherent in the gospel is the power of an omnipotent God. The gospel is not even simply a message about God's power. The message of the gospel is that vehicle through which the transforming power of God invades a life and brings about the new birth. Now, there are many people who are eloquent, and there are many people who have uh, intellectual acumen. That cannot achieve what the gospel is able to achieve. The Apostle Paul tells us that, doesn't he, when writing to the Corinthians. It is simply by the faithful preaching of this message that centers in Christ as Savior of the world that God has chosen to save sinners. So however much it protests, the world doesn't merely need a better system of education or social reform or new ideas in religion. The world needs the gospel. And it needs the gospel because righteousness is revealed in the gospel. Verse 17, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. Righteousness is that right standing that enables a sinner to stand under the scrutiny and under the judgment of God. And without righteousness, no one is able to do that. And Paul spends time from verse 18 in this chapter onwards showing that we have no means of our own to produce this required righteousness. Just glance at it, would you? Verse 18, to the end of the chapter, chapter 1. And we would expect this particular group, because these can be termed the heathen, we would expect this particular group to be condemned, to be guilty. We won't take time to look at it, but these are those, says Paul, who suppress the truth. Some of the things that are mentioned tragically in this chapter are the things that we are seeing enacted in our day and age. Well, okay, they're guilty. Maybe that's not too surprising. 
But then you'll notice from the beginning of chapter 2 that he deals with the hypocrite. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. So he draws attention, not now to the person who would look, as it were, at the heathen and say, well, I'm not like that. And he said, but you're equally guilty. And then look at verse 17 of chapter 2. Now, you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and bring about uh, and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will, if you approve of what is superior, etc., etc., etc. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? So we're now talking about the religious person, the Hebrew, if you like, to keep our H's, the heathen, the hypocrite, and the Hebrew. So that if all a person has is a religious veneer, they too are guilty before God. And then we come to verse 9 of chapter 3. What then shall we conclude? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And then we come to verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. What we need more than anything is righteousness, to be able to stand before God without guilt. And Paul conclusively and decisively in these verses shows it is impossible, whoever we are. It is not within the capability of sinful men and women to produce righteousness. Righteousness is our greatest need. It is found in the gospel and in the faith that this gospel generates. So how can, be there, how can there be those who believe that you can adjust, dilute, marginalize the message and still expect God to use it. Notice that righteousness has two aspects, a plus and a minus, if you like. In the early 1500s, Martin Luther sat in the tower of the Black Cloister in Wittenberg, and he was reading these two verses. He was already challenged as to his life, and he says, that expression, righteousness of God, was like a thunderbolt in my heart. He says, I hated Paul with all my heart when I read that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. He could see that the righteousness of God was an unassailable obstacle to eternal life, which is what he desired. And he was at the point where he knew he was a sinner. He had no righteousness of his own. But then as he read on, he realized that other aspect of righteousness in that the righteousness of Jesus Christ had been put to his account. The true meaning of the gospel became clear to him, and that discovery ultimately resulted in the Protestant Reformation. That wonderful transfer that took place when my sins were laid on Jesus and his righteousness was given to me. We cannot produce righteousness, but in the gospel, we see the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us 
so that we can stand without guilt before a holy God. The sufficiency of the gospel. And lastly, the simplicity of the gospel. It's sufficient to save who? All who believe. I can't imagine anything more straightforward than that. In the gospel is a call to simple trust in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as personal Savior. When Paul was in prison in Philippi with Silas, a fellow missionary, God caused an earthquake, you'll remember, which opened the doors of the prison and the guard thinking that the prisoners would escape and that would cost him his job and perhaps more, was about to take his life. Paul stopped him, told him the prisoners were still present. And the guard, who'd no doubt been listening to Paul and his companion, singing praises to God even in their pain and their discomfort, comes before these two men and asks the question that we long that people should ask. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they reply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's the simplicity of the gospel. Oh, the message may be profound, but the requirement to gain its benefits are quite straightforward. It is responding positively to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It is simply believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And that's why Jesus must be central. There is no gospel without him. Biblical preaching is preaching Christ. And perhaps one of the indictments that we could make of contemporary, I would have to say, market-conscious preaching today is the absence of Christ. Oh, his name may be mentioned, but he is rarely central in some of the general preaching that we hear in these days. When Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians, he referred back to his visit to Corinth. And he tells them that when he had been with them, his only message to them had been Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the gospel. Now, I, I don't wish to be facetious. We, we know that doesn't mean that Paul walked up and down the streets of Corinth just saying Jesus Christ and him crucified. Like preachers of today, he would no doubt have, have presented it in different ways, in different situations and so on. But always, what he's saying is, central to his message were these facts, Jesus Christ and him crucified. There was once a church that had a wonderful text over its front porch. We preach Christ crucified. Sadly, that church began to lose its focus. And as the years went by, the ivy that was growing around the porch revealed the decline of the church. For the ivy, firstly, covered up the word crucified. We preach Christ, and they did, but not Christ crucified. And the ivy continued to grow, and then it covered the word Christ. We preach, and so it did. They carried on preaching. What a tragedy that there are churches and fellowships, certainly in my country, I know from experience and no doubt in yours, where exactly that situation applies. They're preaching, but they're neither preaching Christ nor are they preaching Christ crucified. That's no gospel. 
Our world may be much more sophisticated and technological than Paul's world. But my friends, the spiritual needs of men and women have not changed one little bit. We don't need to change the message. The world needs the same message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is supreme. It is sufficient for the salvation of everyone who believes. I have to ask, have you believed it? The fact that you're here this evening would seem to suggest that you have, but that's not a guarantee, is it? And one of the greatest tragedies that I face in an itinerant ministry is that our churches in the United Kingdom no doubt have people who are there every Sunday and listen to the gospel faithfully presented and they have still never responded to its truth. So if that's true there, might it be true here? The Lord knows. But if you haven't believed it, then believe it. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And if you do believe it, let's make sure that we're using it. I'm never happier than when I sit in a service and I listen to somebody preach the gospel well. And that warms my heart every time. But you see, the gospel is not simply that we, something that we come to church to hear. It's something that we have the responsibility of taking from the church to share with others. Our immediate neighbors, the people that we work with, and even further afield, just as the Lord directs. May the Lord encourage us with these truths concerning that gospel, the unchanging gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may God bless you here in this fellowship as you do what you do to share that message with one and another. Let's pray together.